God, as we study your word together now, I ask that you will reveal your truth to us and help us to understand and apply what we learn to our lives. Thank you, Lord. Hi, it's great to be able to share the word with you. Our passage today is still in the book of Acts uh, of the Apostles. We're in Acts chapter 19 and we're looking at verses 21 to 41. And the version that I'm reading from is the New Living Translation. Here goes. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheatre, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheatre. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realised he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! At last... The mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said. Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I am afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. So, I'll be straight with you. When I was preparing this sermon, I read this passage many times, and each time at the end I was thinking, why is this passage in the Bible? What's the point of this story? And that probably doesn't bode well when you're getting ready to share. 
Do you ever feel like that, though, when you're reading the Bible? Do some passages feel pointless or confusing? You're not alone if you feel that way. But from the second letter of Timothy, also in the Bible, we know that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that all scripture includes passages like Acts 19, 21 to 41, even when I'm wondering what on earth it's there for. So what do you do when you're staring at the Bible and it makes no sense? I'll tell you what I do, what I did, and then perhaps at the end of the sermon you can tell me how successful you think this was. There are three things I do when I'm stuck on a passage. The first thing, by far the most important, is to ask the Holy Spirit to explain it. In the first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul explains to his readers how the Holy Spirit reveals to us the hidden mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 reads, And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. So the first thing I did when wrestling with today's passage was to call out to God to ask the Holy Spirit to help me understand what I was reading. The second thing I do is to get in the right frame of mind. So when someone goes to work in a mine, what do you think they do? Do they just pull on the jeans and trainers and jog down the mine shaft? No, they prepare. They need the right equipment, the right clothing. They need a hard hat to protect their heads with a torch so they can see in the unlit places underground. And getting in the right frame of mind for studying the Bible is similar. Sometimes we have to start by admitting to ourselves that we're not ready and that it's going to take some effort to understand this passage. We're going to need to take a shovel and pickaxe and start digging. So first, ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Second, get ready to do some hard work. And the third thing I do is to reach for some commentaries. Um, many people have come before us, studied the Bible and written about their discoveries. They've done some of the hard work. So the third thing is, get help. Lean on the Holy Spirit, brace yourself for work, and use whatever resources are available. We live in such a privileged time that we have multiple translations of the Bible available to us and commentaries, often at no cost. Bible Gateway on the internet has loads of translations available for free. And for commentaries, why not start with Matthew Henry? His complete Bible commentary is available for free all over the internet. And in our household, we also have a printed version. It's big. I suppose the point is that studying the Bible sometimes is easy and other times it's hard. But hard work is rewarded, like the miners expending all their effort digging in the depths of the earth. If you work at it, you'll find treasure. God isn't looking for passive Christians. He doesn't want us just to listen to sermons on a Sunday. He wants us to work at this. Philippians 2.12, Paul writes, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. When you're digging for treasure in the word of God, hard work is so worthwhile. 
So let's get to our passage. Acts 19, 21-41 tells us about a riot that occurs in the city of Ephesus. And in these 21 verses, we have quite a cast of characters. We have the Apostle Paul, obviously, though his contribution to this episode is limited. He's a godly man, and he shows himself to be fearless. He's quite ready to dive into the rioting crowd and speak to them, despite the fact that some people in the crowd might well have torn him apart. And perhaps he was also protective of the two disciples who found themselves in the middle of the mob. Why was Paul so fearless? I think it's because his encounter with Christ had changed his priorities so radically that the only thing he cared about was doing the right thing for God. He'd realised, and he was absolutely right, that the best thing we can do is to live our lives for God at all times, whatever the cost. But also in this scene, we have two groups of people holding Paul back. They're the disciples and the Asiarchs. We see the disciples being protective, concerned for Paul's welfare. They're exercising some common sense. They don't want Paul to risk his life unnecessarily. And two of the disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, are dragged into the crowd themselves, but they have no further part to play in the story. And we have the Asiarchs. The NLT just calls them officials of the province, but other versions give them their usual title. They're also working to persuade Paul not to dive into the mob. Who were the Asiarchs then? It's not completely clear. It seems they were some kind of political or religious leaders in the Roman Empire's province of Asia, Asia hence Asiarchs. Uh, they may have had a strong association with the imperial cult, where the emperor of the Romans was worshipped as a god. Whatever the case, they were people of significant influence. They weren't Jews or Christians, but they were friendly to Paul. Friendly to Paul, I hear you say. I thought the Romans persecuted the Christians and threw them to lions. I thought they executed Paul in the end. Well, the Roman relationship with Christianity wasn't black and white. Some Roman emperors persecuted the Christians, others not so much. Uh, when the persecution happened, there were political, personal and ultimately spiritual or demonic reasons for that. But at times, the Christians enjoyed relative peace under the Romans. The Romans had learned from previous world empires that when you conquer a nation, it can be wise to allow them to continue in their own tradition and religion. So the Romans were syncretists. They took the traditions of the conquered nation and fused them with their own. They collected religions. If you've ever studied Greek or Roman mythology, you'll know that a lot of the gods had two names, one Roman and one Greek. And that's because the Romans adopted the Greek gods as their own. That's syncretism. So the Greek goddess Aphrodite becomes the Roman goddess Venus. Ares becomes Mars, Artemis, who we see in this passage, becomes Diana, Poseidon becomes Neptune, and so on. So, the Asiarchs, these Roman leaders, there was probably no reason for them to see Paul as a religious threat. They could just absorb his faith into their own, or so they would have thought. There may have been other reasons why the Asiarchs were friendly to Paul too, I and mean, this is speculation, but perhaps they just liked him personally. Maybe they respected him, his wisdom and knowledge. Maybe they liked to be associated with someone so popular, so radical. Maybe they found him impressive. However they felt, and whatever the reasons, they joined with the disciples in, making, in taking a protective attitude towards Paul, and they urged him not to go into the crowd. It's interesting and very important to note that although Paul often acted with such spiritual conviction, knowing the direction he should take, he listened 
to the disciples and the Asiarchs. He let them change his mind. And this shows the kind of humility that's essential for any leader, Christian or otherwise. As a background character, we have Luke, the writer of Acts. And from what we've seen and learned so far in our study of Acts, it's clear that Luke, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, wants to tell the stories of the events that occurred. He paints this scene with a sense of enjoyment and perhaps even fun. We see that particularly in verse 32, which we'll come to later. Next, there's Demetrius, the villain of the piece. He speaks with passion and authority. He exaggerates. He's manipulative. He incites feelings of greed, envy, fear, false pride in the other craftsmen. He could well have been under the influence of our enemy, Satan. Demetrius talks a lot about devotion to the false goddess Artemis, but it looks from this story that this so-called devotion was largely motivated by profit. He may or may not have been a devout believer. We have the tradesmen. They seem all too ready to become angry about anyone who threatens the livelihood or the reputation of the city. Their reputation, sorry, the reputation of the city brings in tourists which brings in profit, so in the end it probably all comes down to money and prestige with these people. We have the crowd. Some of them would have been the craftsmen, but it looks like most of them were citizens of Ephesus, carried along with the wave of protest, unthinking, confused, sheep without a shepherd. I use that phrase deliberately. If we were faced with this sort of mob, it would probably frighten us, but see how Jesus might have viewed them. Matthew 9, 36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Our last character in this story is the town clerk, the mayor. His role in this scene is really interesting, as we'll see as we get to the final verses of this chapter. It looks like he was concerned, maybe fearful, but he was also persuasive and influential. Not in the rabble-rousing style of Demetrius. Rather, this is a cooler head prevailing. He reasons with the people, telling them off in the process, and the crowd disperses. Not a Christian, but his actions protect the Christians. There are some key themes and principles we can, with some effort, draw out of this passage. And here are a couple of principles to bear in mind as we go through the passage. First principle. Christianity is not a threat to the state. We are not of the, of the world, but we certainly are in the world. And our beliefs involve everyone turning to Christ, not the violent overthrow of ungodly rulers. And this is one of the reasons the Jews were so disappointed in Jesus. They'd hoped for a conquering king who would lead them into glorious and successful battle against their enemies. They thought they'd get their revenge against their oppressors. Instead, Jesus came preaching a message of peace, love, reconciliation, and yes, justice, but of winning souls, not killing them. Christianity is not a threat to the state. And the town clerk realised that persecution wasn't an appropriate response here. And we can thank God for those men and women who, even though not believers themselves, still speak up for us. Christianity isn't a threat to the state. Second principle, we don't normally attack the world's sin. We present the truth. Paul wasn't actually attacking the cult of Artemis. He didn't assault the temple keepers. He didn't destroy the statues. He was even friends, it seems, with some of the leaders of a false religion. No, Paul 
presented the truth. And as he talked about the fact that the only true God was not made with human hands, was not an idol, this truth entered the hearts of his listeners. They naturally stopped buying the Artemis idols. Now that's not that's not an attack. That's a relationship. That's a conversation. So two principles to watch out for as we go through these verses. One, Christianity is not a threat to the state. Two, we don't normally attack the world's sin. We present the truth. All this said, if we imagine ourselves in the shoes of any of the disciples, or especially poor Gaius and Aristarchus, this is a pretty scary situation, right? You're certain that the crowd is angry at you and they're shouting you down for two hours. That's got to be terrifying. OK, we'll whiz through these 21 verses, picking out some things of interest along the way. Follow in uh, your Bible if you can. Verse 21, Acts 19, verse 21. Paul felt compelled by the spirit to go to Macedonia, Achaia, then Jerusalem and finally Rome. He's following the direction of the Holy Spirit as usual. And in relation to Rome in particular, he may also have been longing to see the Christians there. He has a particular affection for them, as we can see when we read the book of Romans. Plus, there was no denying the strategic importance of Rome as the centre of power for what was, at the time, the largest empire in the world. Skipping to verse 23. Uh, this is towards the end of Paul's time in Ephesus. And this verse says that serious trouble developed concerning the way. If you wonder why Christianity was referred to as the way, think back to what Jesus said of himself. John 14, 6, and here he's speaking to Thomas. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. And so this organisation of believers was also known as the way. Verse 24, Demetrius makes shrines of the so-called goddess Artemis. Artemis in Greek, Diana in the Roman pantheon of gods. Artemis was the patron of hunting. The temple of, Ephes of Artemis in Ephesus was so magnificent, it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. A lot of time, effort and craftsmanship went into making the temple and all the art that filled it. This was a big deal for the city. Festivals were held in honour of Artemis and they were a big deal too, marked by orgies and drunkenness. And that's exactly why in Paul's letter to Ephesians, we get the impression that spiritually, the citizens were in a bit of a mess. Demetrius was possibly the head of a guild of craftsmen. Matthew Henry says this, See how craftsmen, and crafty men too, above the rank of silversmiths, make an advantage to themselves of people's superstition and serve their worldly ends by it. See how craftsmen, and crafty men too, above the rank of silversmiths, make an advantage to themselves of people's superstition and serve their worldly ends by it. The craftsmen brazenly profited from the superstitions, the pagan devotion of the residents of Ephesus and all those who visited. Verse 25, Demetrius seems to be quite shrewd. He certainly knows how to appeal to the craftsmen's self-interest. Gentlemen, he begins, you know that our wealth comes from this business. Wealth can be a huge problem for us, a stumbling block, whether we have it and can't bear to lose it or don't have it and desire it a little too much. 
In the Gospels, we read that Jesus spoke about wealth to a rich man who wanted to know how to gain eternal life. We see some of that conversation in Matthew 19. Verses 21 to 22 read, Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. He went away sad for he had many possessions. He'd rather keep his wealth in the here and now than exchange it for eternal life. See how wealth can blind us, whether we have it or not. Acts 19.26, Christianity came out of Judaism, a faith centred around the same God. And as we'd expect, we see principles carried over into Christianity, such as this, that God is not made by hands. No idol can ever be God. Verse 27, Demetrius continues his scaremongering. The city, the temple of Artemis and the goddess herself are all in danger of losing their prestige. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Back in Genesis 11, humans have set about building a mighty city and a tall tower in Babylon to testify to their own glory, to make themselves famous. God won't have that. He will not share his glory with another. So he opposed the construction of the Tower of Babel and scattered the people. And he opposes the Temple of Artemis too. Today, the temple's a ruin and the worship of Artemis is no more. And this is what they fear, these craftsmen, that they will lose all the advantages and benefits they have in this world. Do we cling to the world like this? Do we love the things it offers? In verse 28, we see the obvious effect of Demetrius's speech. Emotions and passions are stirred and the riot begins. Verse 29, off they all go to the amphitheatre. We have the remains of an amphitheatre here in Chester, which might give us an incorrect image of the one in Ephesus. The amphitheatre in Ephesus had a capacity of about 25,000. We know this from archaeological excavations. It was huge. This was the official meeting place for the city. And so, as the rioting craftsmen charged off to the amphitheatre, many of the city's residents were caught up and carried along so that there was a huge crowd gathered, dragging some disciples with them. They were confused, angry, violent, hateful all marks of devotion to an unholy cause or idol. Verse 30, Paul wants to go to the crowd. He wants to help his friends. And I'm, I'm sure he fervently believes the words Jesus spoke in John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's lives for one's friends. But this wasn't the time for Paul to make that sacrifice. Can you imagine what might have happened here if Paul hadn't listened to his friends, had gone into the rioting crowd? That might have ended his mission prematurely. Verse 31, the Asiarchs, remember these of the current or former officials of some kind of council or temple organisation. They were people of the world, friendly to Paul. Sometimes as Christians, we shy away from friendships with non-Christians. It even says in the Bible, doesn't it, that we're not to be friends with the world. James 4.4, you adulterers, don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. But we have to understand that verse in context. James is talking about evil desires, jealousy for the delights of the world, wanting earthly things more than God. 
James doesn't mean that we can't be friends with our neighbours, our colleagues, our peers. This is an important point. It makes sense of a lot of evangelism, actually. Loving our neighbour, loving our friends, loving those around us who don't yet know Christ. That's a vital part of the church's mission. Verse 32. This is the verse that I think most shows Luke's sense of humour. Inside the people were all shouting some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. And in fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. Most of them didn't even know why they were there. There's a dark side to this, though, isn't there? Look how easy the people were swept along, carried into this riot, shouting, jostling. You might remember the riots in the UK in 2011. That's obviously a few years ago now, but I remember it well, vivid scenes. On the 4th of August 2011, police in Tottenham shot dead 29-year-old Mark Duggan. Duggan was a convicted criminal and was under observation because the police thought he was about to commit a crime in retaliation for the murder of his cousin. The police knew that he'd bought a handgun. And after that event, after the police shot and killed Mark Duggan, several conflicting stories emerged. Duggan had a gun. Duggan didn't have a gun. Police shouted a warning. Police didn't shout a warning and just opened fire. Two days later, smouldering anger ignited and the riots began. There were six days of rioting, looting and arson, not just in London, but spreading to other cities, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Derby and many more. Five people died in those riots and at least 205 were injured. More than 3,000 people were arrested. Do you suppose that one of the people smashing the windows of Curry's and running off with the TV was doing that because of outrage at the event? Have you ever become so angry that the rage takes over and after the event you feel guilt and shame? We need to admit that our flesh, our sinful nature, still wars within us, as Paul says, still wants to turn us against God. And it doesn't take a lot of provocation for people to be carried along in the wave of a riot, whether they understand what they're rioting about or not. Paul's friends, Christians and non-Christians alike, were protecting him from this chaos. Also, as humans, we have a need to belong. We are created by God to have a relationship with him. And ultimately, that's where the need for belonging must find its fulfilment. But fallen humans reach out for anything, any cause, to meet that need, to be part of something, to have purpose. When will we learn that no purpose will satisfy us like living for God? The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We find our greatest fulfilment in glorifying God and our destiny is to enjoy him forever. Isn't that great? In verse 33, we see the Jews putting forward Alexander to speak for them and no explanation is given. It's possible, and I think most likely, that the purpose was for the Jews to distance themselves from the Christians. It's not us rioting, take the Christians, they're the ones you want. Verse 34 shows us that didn't work. This is a rioting crowd. It's not going to take much to set them off again. They see a Jew and they decide they don't want to listen to him. And they knew that the Jews didn't approve of idols, so the crowd definitely wasn't going to listen to him. 
We may think that human reason is the best way to deal with every situation. It's not. The wisdom of God is what we need in every situation. I guess in this case, the wisdom of God would be that one of the Ephesians' own people needed to speak to them, not a Jew and certainly not a Christian. Verse 35. Now, this city clerk was something like a mayor and he would have been the liaison officer between the Romans and the town council. And he certainly would have wanted to appease his overlords. He was worried that he was going to have to account to them for this riot. Uh, the citizens viewed this man as their ally, an ally who acknowledged their concerns, so they were placated. Remember that Luke here is reporting historical events. He isn't saying that we should behave like the clerk. The image that fell from heaven that's mentioned here, or the sacred stone, depending on which translation you read, was very probably a meteorite, and meteorites were included in the worship of Artemis Diana. Verse 36. The clerk continues to represent the voice of law and order. He definitely isn't defending Christianity in any way, but he is the voice of authority. And Paul would tell us to respect and pay attention to authorities, not to follow them blindly into evil practices, but to accept their rule as given by God. He writes about this in a few places, and a good place to go would be Romans 13. The first verse of that chapter reads, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Romans 13.1 So we note that even though the town clerk was not a believer in Jesus, he is using God-given authority to quiet the crowd. And in verse 37, the clerk speaks and basically says, there's nothing to see here. Move along. It's a clever move to play this down. The clerk tells the crowd to use proper legal process if they have a complaint in verse 38. And law was extremely important to the Romans. For all their barbaric ways, they considered themselves to be very civilised and they prized law and order. Again, Luke is observing and reporting this, not recommending it. As believers, we should do our best to stay out of court. If you like scripture references for that, have a look at Matthew 5, 25 to 26, Luke 12, 57 to 59, and 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 7. Verse 9. The clerk suggests waiting for the next meeting of the town council, which probably would have been in a week or so. Verse 40 really shows the clerk's fear. As I've said before, he'd want good relations with the Romans not have them come in and start locking people up. And he probably wanted a quiet life. And finally, in verse 41, we see that the clerk had the desired effect. The crowd left the amphitheatre. And we can assume that Gaius and Aristarchus were mercifully unharmed. They get one last mention in the next chapter of Acts, so they certainly survived the experience. And here we see God's providence at work. He uses a non-believer to protect the disciples and to restore calm to the city. You might think that God would be angry with the Ephesians, firstly for threatening the disciples, and secondly, more importantly, for worshipping false gods. But see how gently God treats his creatures. He could smite us into oblivion. We certainly deserve it. Instead, he pours blessings on those that don't deserve them. He gives sunshine and rain. He makes the crops grow. He gives us skills and abilities to make things. And he patiently waits for us to return to our God. 
to accept the sacrifice of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In Timothy 2, 1 to 4, Paul makes this plain. He wants us not only to submit to our political leaders, but also, and most importantly, to pray for them. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. God's heart is for everyone to be saved. So he's created the best possible universe for that to happen, for people to learn about him and to turn to him. And while he waits for us to accept his, his ways, he's kind to us like a father. He gives us the discipline we need and he gives us blessings we don't deserve. Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God's kindness leads us to repentance. So in this passage that I didn't understand, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can draw out some very important things. Respect and appreciate the authorities. We may not always want to do this, and they do need to be held to account. But the Bible clearly tells us to pray for them earnestly. Don't cling to worldly things, money, a job, security, power, fashion, None of that. But be a friend, a true friend of sinners. Not like we're collecting scalps for the kingdom, but genuinely a friend, a good neighbour, someone they can depend on. Don't be afraid of the world or repelled by its people. We're here to love them and to point them to Jesus. We're here to share the message of Christ, a message of love, respect, honour, kindness and freedom from sin. And learn to see God's providence, his unexpected provision, as it operates in your life. We don't like everything that happens, but that we, know, we know that we have a good father who wants to raise us up as mature sons and daughters, who wants to make us into a family whose trust is in him. We thank you, Father, for your word and for all that you teach us through it. We thank you, Lord, that you do care for us. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is for everyone to be saved. Your heart is for us all to be part of that process of reaching out to people who don't know you, of sharing you with them. God, I ask that you bless my brothers and sisters as we go into another week. Thank you for protecting and preserving us. Thank you, Lord, for being our kind, loving God. Amen. God bless you all.